When we contemplate on what Christ accomplished on the cross and how it was the culmination of his coming to dwell with creation, we are compelled to consider its cost. A perfect sacrifice for an imperfect people. Hi, I'm Femi Asabin, a preacher for the Church of Christ. In today's sermon, The Sin Christ Counseled on the Cross, rooted in John 19, we will work through what Jesus attained for Christians and the effect it is to have on our lives, specifically in regards to sin. I hope this message helps you to sin less as you walk with Christ, whose sacrifice makes us sinless before God. As we've been going through our study through John, last week we looked at the trial of Jesus, and this week we're going to look at the crucifixion of Jesus. And we understand that the crucifixion is the culmination of what Christ came to do. He has been preaching throughout his whole entire ministry, and he's been in these situations to where it seemed like he was in peril. But what does it say? His hour had not come. And now we have reached his hour, and it is here. And what is going to happen is that Jesus is going to die and suffer on a cross for the sin of the world. And if you think about that, it makes you makes you kind of wonder what type of God would put himself in such a position to where he would allow himself to be used and abused by his own creation just to save it. What type of humility had to be exemplified, meekness shown so that the one who created us, as John will say, everything that was created was created through Christ, allows that creation to shame him so that he can save it. And as Jesus demonstrated in the 13th chapter of John, I'm showing you how to be humble so that you could be humble. And in showing us how to be humble, he said that you are great if you take the role of a servant. I am going to be exalted because I allowed myself to be denigrated and crucified. And that's the Jesus in which we follow. The one who tells us how to be. And at the hour that he has come to this earth for, we see that he did not allow thoughts of his glory, his participation, his unity that he had with God to stop him from doing what he was called to do. If we think of ourselves, at times we find it difficult to do what it is that's necessary when we have to take a subservient role because we know who we are. We know what we come from and we know what we did to get to obtain that status. And we don't want to belittle ourselves because we believe that that's beneath us. But if it's for the glory of Christ, dare I say that we should take on that shame, that we should show that humility and exemplify that meekness. So that the world can see the faith that we have in God. 
Because God is really a justifier for those who do his will. And that God is really going to make sure that even in bad situations, those who are faithful, committed to him, come out on top. And nothing that happens is beyond the control, the will, or even the knowledge of God. He sees it from a mile away. So what I want us to do today is I want us to consider how shameful it was for Jesus to be on the cross. But why did he do it? To remove the sin from the world. And as we think about the sin that he removed, we must acknowledge that sin is the only thing that separates us from God. And also, he didn't qualify the type of sin. He just said sin. So he didn't say, I'm going to remove the big sin, which we try to do. Oh, that's a big sin, so I'm not going to do that. But I'll do these little sins. Anything against God's will is sin. And what Jesus said is, I'm going to sacrifice for all of that. Because I want everybody who has faith in me to be able to stand before God justified and forgiven because what I have did, what I have done. But also, I want us to look at the humility that he had and let that embolden us to be humble when we are faced with opposition. When we are challenged to be Christians in a context to where there's hostility and not look to a status we might have attained, not look to the relationship we have with God to say, I'm not going to, but to see that as something that I always have that can never be taken away from me. And even when I have to be used and abused by people who don't understand what it is that they're doing to me or why it is that they hate me so because they're really being controlled and manipulated by Satan, that we have the faith to say, I'll go through this with you, God. I'll be the person that you're calling me to be. Because I know at the end, you're the one that's going to justify me. And the way I want to do this today is slightly different. I've given you what the aim of this sermon is. And I just want to put scripture on our mind to think about it. Because as we look at the cross, I think the best interpreter of what happened that day, that moment, is scripture. Because the Holy Spirit inspired it. And it also gives us insight to what God was doing through it. So the first place that we're going to look at is John 19 to put the incident of the cross in our mind. And what we're actually going to do is we're going to just read the first few verses of John 19. And then we're going to uh, read a chunk of the last, the ending of John 19. Because I just really want us to see what happened to Christ on the cross. There was a lot that happened, but I want us to see what happened to Christ on the cross. John 19. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they smote him with their hands. 
Pilate therefore went forth again and said unto them, Behold, I bring forth to you that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. You see what has just happened? Jesus, beaten, scorched. And I'm pretty sure we're familiar with that punishment to where they take a metal ball or, or metal balls on the end of chains and they just whip you on your back with the intent of tearing, ripping at the flesh. A man that was acknowledged to be innocent by the one who's actually administering this punishment has him scourged to appease a people whom Jesus came to save. To get him from having to crucify him, he scourges him. And then he says, I find no fault in him. And his soldiers mock him. You say you're a king, we're going to put on these kingly garments on you. Purple was the color of royalty. And now we're going to ridicule you in front of the very people with whom you come from because we really do not respect the Jews and we really look down on them. And so you signify how we really feel about you Jews and you, the king of the Jews, have no authority in this court. You have no power because you're coming to me and asking for me to administer justice. So I'm going to beat your king. I'm going to mock him. My soldiers are going to disrespect him. And I'm going to present him to you because I find no fault in him. And the very people that Jesus came from, whom he has fed, who he has performed miracles for, whom he has testified and preached and showed the way of life, say, kill him. We would rather have a murderer, a robber in our midst. A man who does not have any miraculous powers, who does not have a word from God, who can really restore the relationship that's broken between God's people and him. We would rather have him than the son of God, because this son of God is highlighting all of our faults. The son of God is calling us to be something better than what we are. And we don't want that. So Pilate, crucify him. And let's pick up at verse number 13. And when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover at about the sixth hour. And he said unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said unto him, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away.
And he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him on either side, one and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city. And it was written in Hebrew and Greek and in Latin. Then said the chief priest of the Jews to Pilate, write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam woven from top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us therefore not rend it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says they parted my raiment among them and for my vesture. They did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus, therefore, saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he said unto his mother, woman, behold, thy son. Then said he to the disciple, behold, thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. After this. Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was a set of vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it up on hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his ghost. Jesus. This sinless man, this innocent savior has been burdened with the sin of the world, abandoned by the very people whom he came to save, acknowledged to be innocent by the people who are tormenting him. It's put to shame. Did you hear it? He has his cross and he's naked, crucified with nothing to shame him. And he still has the mind to care for the mother with whom he came into this world from. So even at one of his low, at the lowest point, he still has a heart for people. He says, take my mother. And we believe that to be John. Take care of my mother. And from that day on, he took care of her. It wasn't because Jesus didn't have brothers to do that. He had James. He had Jude. But he knew that he wanted somebody who had faith in him to look out for the one which whom God blessed him to come through. So he shows love when it appears that he's hopeless. He carries his own cross, a burden that is very difficult, being that he was just beaten. And he's doing all of this fully exposed to the world. And none of this, none of this was a surprise to him. Because in that garden, when, when he was praying, he knew when Judas came, exactly what was going to happen. 
and he did not run from the moment. He embraced it. He knew what he had to go through, but he also knew what it meant for all those whom he went through it for. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. And we'll look at this chapter in its entirety. It's a, it's, it's a beautiful passage giving us insight into what God was doing through Jesus on the cross. It's also a passage that led the Ethiopian eunuch to salvation. It was John 50, I mean Isaiah 53 that he was reading when Philip uh, met him on the way. And he said, who is he speaking to? Is he speaking about himself or somebody else? And that passage allows Philip to teach him Jesus, which allows that eunuch to understand, I need to be baptized. Because what Jesus did on the cross what God had already for, for, for ordained to happen was fulfilled. And this was not man's plan, but God's plan. Listen, who hath believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he has grown up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there shall be no beauty that we should desire. He is despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. What does that sound like? When he was being taken, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. They hid their faces from him. He was despised. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearer is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. And when he made grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteousness, shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he hath poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sins of many and made intercession 
for the transgressors. You see, Jesus knew what God had wanted him to do so that he could remove sin from the world. He knew that the suffering that he had to go through was necessary, and he knew that he was going to do this in a context to where those whom he suffered for were going to abandon him. And yet he embraced it. He took it because he knew that it was God's plan for him to save the world and that he had to do it. And we read in John 19, a a few times it's mentioned, according to Scripture. See, Jesus lived his life according to Scripture. Translation, according to the will of God. And he made sure that what he did aligned with what God's will was, even when it meant that he had to be in dire straits. Even when it meant that he had to sacrifice for people who did not understand what they were doing to him in the moment. They thought they was just killing a man when in actuality they were perpetuating God's plan to bring salvation into the world. You see, sometimes we go through things and we have to take the loss for it in that moment so that God's glory can be revealed. So that as we suffer, we're showing, testifying to people that God has a will And though it might look bad for those who are living according to his will, his scripture, that the outcome will be the better thing for them than to evade the temporary pain that they're going to experience. You see, what allows Jesus to have this mindset, Paul elaborates on. And if you will, turn with me too. Philippians 2, and then we'll, we'll look at uh, Colossians as well. Because in both of those, it gives us insight into Christ's mindset that prepares him to do the work of God. You see, if we don't have the proper mindset to do what God wants us to do, we're not going to do it, especially when it gets hard. When we know that the road that we're going to have to travel entails bearing our cross, entails us suffering for the cause of God, if we don't have the mindset that Christ had, then we will not put ourselves in positions to be willing to suffer, to endure whatever it is that's needed for God's glory. Philippians 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, what he did was he humbled himself even unto death, even an excruciating, humiliating death of the cross. You see, a lot of times we associate the cross with the pain that was on the cross. But the bigger problem that 
the first century world had to wrestle with. And, and, and you can see it in Romans. You can see it in uh, Corinthians talking about the wisdom of God is the foolishness that God would be shamed on the cross. You see, it was, it was, it was a bigger thing to be shamed than it was to experience the pain. And if we think about that a little bit, a lot of times what we try to do is we try to evade shame as well. So we don't want to be shamed for being a Christian because those are those weirdos who don't have fun. Those are those peculiar people who don't really experience life because they got all these rules that are telling them they can't do this, they can't do that. So we participate and things at times we know to be sin because we don't want to face the shame of being called a Christian. But Jesus said, I'm going to take that shame for God's glory. I'm going to experience whatever it is necessary that I have to experience understanding that it was not robbery for myself to be considered equal with God I humbled myself, put on shame so that I could live out God's will because God will exalt me. And if we recognize that, yes, we are Christians. And yes, we're the children of God. And it's not a bad thing to be considered the children of God. But if we recognize that there might be instances to where we have to endure, suffer shame because of our relationship with God. It doesn't make us less the child of God. If we faithfully encounter that, what it will do is it'll put us in a position to where God will exalt us and God will get the glory and we'll be living out his will. And while people might look at you in the moment and they might ridicule you, they might put you down. When it's all said and done, God is going to lift you up. Now, let's look over in Colossians. And the verse that I want is Sam 1. And we're going to start at verse number, start at verse 10. Because what Jesus did calls for a response for us. And we owe a debt to Christ for taking away the debt that was given to us. But reflecting on the sacrifice that Jesus made can help us, empower us to live according to the will of God. Listen. Strengthen with all might according to his glorious power and to all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in life, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated unto us the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. What happened on the cross, we know this, brought about our forgiveness of sins. But who was it that was on that cross? He 
was the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is born before all things and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth and things in heaven. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven. Wherefore, I, Paul, am made a minister. You see, that sacrifice that Jesus gave on the cross was meaningful. And it's supposed to compel us as Christians to understand what we're called to, that we're unified to God through what Jesus did on the cross, and that that was a very transformative moment for all of creation. And because God did something for us, we have to have a response to him that shows we understand the depth of what he did. The creator submitted himself to the creation and allowed the creation in their mind to destroy them. That's humility. That's meekness. That's love. And that was purposeful to bring all the creation to one through what he did at the cross. And if we understand the depth of what he did on the cross, then we should be unified to God through Jesus and flee, flee those sinful things that that were nailed on the cross with Christ. The very reason why Christ had to die was because of sin. And if we recognize that, then we should flee from the sin that's in our life. Because we're appreciative of what Jesus did at that moment on Calvary. Testified in the fact we were baptized. Evident in the fact that we come to worship, to study, to read our Bibles. Witnessed in the way that we walk. But it starts with our mind. And we have to capture every thought to control it. Because at times, our mind goes astray. At times, our mind wanders and has us to live less than our calling and to resort back to our flesh. And sometimes we're aware, sometimes we're not. And if you think about sin, that you, you're also called to consider 
that in the Old Testament, they had a system to deal with sin. And what's interesting in the Old Testament, that there was an acknowledgement of known sins and unknown sins. And no matter if you sinned willingly or unwillingly, when it was found out, death was required. Not your death, the death of an animal as a substitute for you. That should tell us how, how, how serious sin is. If I do something wrong, something has to die. No matter how big or little it is in my eyes. And if it's really big in God's eyes, I have to die. But if I do something wrong, it requires the blood of something living. Meaning that for each transgression, death necessitates forgiveness. I curse somebody in my mind. Something has to die. For that to be forgiven. I steal something. Because I'm hungry. Something has to die. For that to be forgiven. There's restitution as well. But something has to die. Each and every time. Somebody sinned. In the Old Testament. And what God said was. I understand. That I had that system. Because what I was trying to do was trying to teach you the severity of sin and how drastic I see sin. And that every time that you commit sin, that I'm going to put something in your place because something has to die. Adam and Eve ate a fruit to acquire knowledge and it brought about their death. It seems like a drastic consequence. But what God is saying is that anything that is against me does not deserve to be in my presence. And I am the God of heaven and of earth, and I am present everywhere. So if anything is going to go against my will, it must be eradicated. But Jesus took the place of all of that on the cross. And so we have the freedom of mind to know that even when I sin and the death is required, it was already paid by God himself in the form of Jesus. We just read he did not consider it robbery to call himself equal to God. Yet he humbled himself and obeyed and was obedient even to the death on the cross. Why? To alleviate the sin of the world so that those who understood it and those who have faith in what he did would be unified back to him. And, and we read that we need to change our minds about how we view our disposition towards sinning. And what I want us to do is end today with looking at two passages in Hebrews. First passage is going to be found in 9, chapter 9, verse 11. And this is going to talk a little bit about that sacrifice.
that Jesus made for sin. And then the second passage, this is going to be found in the next chapter. And what it's going to talk about in that chapter is how we are to live because of that sacrifice and our understanding of it. And as you're turning there, it should be noted that what the Hebrews writer is really trying to get those who listen to read, hear that book is this surety, rootedness, development of faith so that the people will not lose out on entering into the rest that God has to offer. Repeat a thing in there. He says, enter into the rest that God has brought. Because Jesus Christ is greater than Moses, than angels, than everything. And what we really need to do is have faith so that we can enter into that rest. And when he compares the old sacrificial system of the goats and bulls that were being sacrificed to atone for sin. And now what we have in Christ Jesus, we see the magnitude to how great it was. Goats and bulls had to be sacrificed each and every time you sin. So every time you sin, I think what happened, though, was you got to see really how bad your sinning was. Now, since we have grace and we have Jesus, we're kind of a step away from seeing the depth of what that sin really is. So if I sin, I don't have to kill an animal. And I don't have to really acknowledge that what I did wrong cost a life. Because I just, I'm removed from it a little bit. That makes sense? But when we understand the grace that God provided for us, it should cause us, on another sense, to live a little bit more faithful. Listen to what he says in Hebrews 9, starting at verse 11. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now jump over to 10 verse 19. We'll continue this thought. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiness, the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from 
an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoking unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as ye see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking for judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despises Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. How much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden under the foot of the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sacrificed an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst you became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion on me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. And it goes on and it, it, it fortifies that thought. But what the Hebrew writer is really trying to tell us is if we recognize the cross, we know the humility that Jesus had when he went there the shame that he endured, the sin that he removed, the sacrifice that he was for us to be God's people, children of God, for us to consider our ways and to repent and to stop living this lives of sin, it should compel us to hold on to that faith even the more as we get older and the dead judgment draws near. Because when we recognize that Jesus did something great for us on the cross, if we belittle that sacrifice, we don't sacrifice with bloods and goats. We can't go back and offer another sacrifice. Jesus already died on the cross. He washed away our sin. And because he did that, there's an expectation that we live a certain way. When we got baptized, we were compelled to get baptized because we had a belief. We had a faith. We had a hope. And sometimes what happens is as you continue in a thing for a long time, you start to become complacent. You start to take it a little bit lightly. You start to take it for granted. <clears throat> and you lose some of that initial zeal that you had when you first received what it was that you wanted. With some kids, it's a Christmas gift that they wanted all year and then they get it and then the next week it's of no value because it has lost its, it's, it's lost its appeal. Some people, it's a new car. 
Some people it's a job. But as Christians, we should never lose our zeal, our appeal, our hope, our desire to live up to the standard that Jesus set forth with the sacrifice and the removal of the sin that he took away on the cross. Because if we do, we have no more sacrifice for that sin. But if we understand what Jesus did, we would never lose our zeal. We might struggle at times. It might cause us to have to go through some shame for Jesus. But we know that he did that already. It might cause us to have to be humble and to recognize that I am a child of God. And even though I'm a child of God and you guys are belittling me, I'm going to allow myself to be ridiculed by the world and exalted by God. Jesus showed us how to do that. And he told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And it's better that I go. Because when I go, the comforter will come. And when we were baptized, we were each given the Holy Spirit to guide us, to lead us, to teach us truth so that we'll know God's will more shortly and also have the power to live it. The cross of Christ, the reason why Jesus came, his hour has come in John. And because that hour has come in John, our eternal day is now available because of the sacrifice he made at the cross. I encourage us all, especially in times when we get weak, to reread the crucifixion. Read passages like the ones that we just looked at, showing us the depth of what happened on the cross, the purpose of the sacrifice, so that we will be compelled away from the sin that's tempting us, that's calling us, the flesh that has desires that are not of God, so that we won't lose out on the hope that we have, the faith we professed that led us to baptism. So when Jesus comes, we will make heaven our home eternally because that's why he died, to come back to get those who would respect what he did for the whole world and live as much as they can sin free. That's the message. I hope you are encouraged, you consider, look back at it, especially sometime this week and especially when your faith is tempted so that you can remember what God called us to and what he's called us from. I'm not sure where that sermon leaves you. My prayer is that you will contemplate it and incorporate it into your Christian life. If you're not a Christian, I ask, what's stopping you? God sent his son Jesus to freely extend the gift of salvation to all who will follow him. To get that salvation, one must follow the example set out in scripture. The book of Acts, which details the church's beginnings and expansion, shows us biblical examples of those who were saved. A good place to look is in Acts 2. You get Peter preaching the first gospel sermon and the response of those who heard and believed his message. They repented and were baptized, which added them to the church Christ established. 
The Bible only teaches of one church. If you want to be added to it, go to your local church of Christ and tell them your desire to be washed of your sins and to live a godly life. Study your Bible, put its teachings to practice, and you will make heaven your home.